you know, back in the 80s, we started putting in arcades because we found another revenue stream. And so between 80, 90s and early 2000s, that was a great concept. But as that generation of moviegoers has aged, they've gotten out of the arcade mode and they've gotten into the adult beverage mode. And what we have found on the operation side is that while arcades were very profitable, the bar business is about four times as profitable. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the pulse of theatrical exhibition. And in this week's episode, we've got Larry Etter from Alco Theatres and also part of the National Association of Concessionaires speaking in our feature segment, going over everything that happened at the NAC annual convention in Memphis this year. We go into detail on everything in the food and beverage world on the side of movie theaters. But before we get into that, we have a full panel here to discuss the latest news coming from the side of theatrical exhibition. We've got a strike from two of the major guilds in Hollywood. We have Russ Fisher, editorial director at the Box Office Studios, and our analyst here at Box Office Pro, Chad Kennerk, joining us to talk about that. And Rebecca, Polly, and I will be going over big news over at Cineworld, which has announced a proposed change in leadership as the company emerges from bankruptcy. A lot to go over, guys. Let's step right into everything going on here in the market because it's been a bumpy ride, not only at the box office, but also outside on the production end, on the executive carousel end, because Rebecca, there's been a major shakeup here at the top of Cineworld, the world's second largest exhibition circuit parent company of Regal as it exits bankruptcy. There are proposed new executives coming in to take over uh, the role that Mookie Greidinger once looked after. Yeah, Daniela, uh, we're getting closer and closer to uh, to Regal or Cineworld, parent company of Regal in the U.S., exiting Chapter 11. Uh, with that comes a new chairman of the board for Cineworld. That would be Eric Foss. He's new to the cinema exhibition community, but has a long history of uh, executive leadership, uh, specifically at Aramark, which is involved in well, I mean, 18 billion things, but let's say that the food space is, is a main one. And then was the CEO of Pepsi for a while. So uh, we heard that first, kind of so some new blood coming into to Cineworld, courtesy of Mr. Foss. But then on the CEO side, uh, Daniel, it's actually someone who, who is going to be familiar to most of our listeners here, maybe, and to you who have interviewed multiple times, right? Yeah, that's Eduardo Acuña, the current or soon-to-be former president of uh, Cinepolis America's business. Eduardo is the type of executive hire that comes from someone who wants to bring in a veteran in the business, a veteran who knows multinational operations of a major circuit, and one with a proven and successful track record in theatrical exhibition. He was in charge of Cinepolis in Brazil for about six years, almost seven years, in which he was able to enter an extremely competitive market. Anyone in the business world that has ever tried to enter Brazil with a foreign business knows that that's next to impossible with how that market is set up. Eduardo was part of that leadership group that came in and established Cineplis as one of the major 
exhibitors in the country. He since left that role in around 2015 and has been working with Cinepolis in their Americas division, helping out in the US, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Peru, Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, Costa Rica, and Panama in everything exhibition related. So this is very much an insider's pick to head a circuit like Cineworld. A very exciting hire, I think, a name that is very familiar to many of us. And if you've attended CinemaCon recently, when was it? Was it last year, two years ago, that Eduardo was part of one of the panels? So it's certainly not a stranger. It's very much in the exhibition family, the new leadership over at Cineworld Regal. Yeah, Daniel, in in, uh, less pleasant news, uh, something that the entire industry is talking about, we have a strike not only from the WGA, but also from SAG-AFTRA. I know uh, when the WGA, when it was just them going on strike, I think among the cinema community, the thought was, okay, well, this is is mostly going to affect television, television production, you know, film has uh, a long enough lead time along enough runway that, you know, this could perhaps hopefully be settled before it has any direct impact. That is not the case. There's there's a lot to this, like uh, people, uh, actors in SAG after now are, uh, are not going to be able to do press for, for upcoming movies, which is, uh, I think, kind of one of the shorter term effects that we're seeing on the cinema side. But yeah, we have uh, Russ, Russ and Chad here who both have kind of experience on that union side of things to, to break this down. Uh, let's start with you, Russ. Can you kind of give us a, a rundown of uh, what the major points are that, uh, that are in contention here and you know any kind of concept of how long this might last? Because it has happened one time before that SAG-AFTRA and the WGA have gone on strike at the same time. Yeah, yeah, they they were on strike. I think they were on strike at the, at the same time in 1960 when Ronald Reagan led SAG. And you don't really think of Ronald Reagan as a labor leader. <laughs> but I think to your to your question about what the major points are, they're slightly different on the writer's side and on the actor's side. On the writer's side, it's really, but they really come down to a couple of things, which include residuals, which are the payments that are given when something runs again. Let's say you make a show or a movie and it you know it plays first run you get paid but then if that tv show goes into reruns or if the movie is played on television things like that you get paid again and you don't necessarily get paid a lot but the idea is that you are sharing in the continued success of this thing that you created and that is a thing that has changed dramatically like the way residuals are paid has been a consistent point in Hollywood labor strikes for decades. And every time there's kind of a new technological paradigm shift, whether it's cable or streaming or whatever, this question comes up again, because what's happened in the past is that the way residuals are paid is always sort of determined up to the threshold of whatever the new technology is, and it's never really been future-proofed. So that's a big sticking point. Uh, With writers, there's just... The AI question is interesting because I think it had been a relatively minor point before these strikes began, but the way that AI has been negotiated for both SAG-AFTRA and the WGA has turned AI, I think, into an existential nightmare of a question for people who I think are rightly concerned about their very ability to consistently work being taken away. So suddenly if writers are, you know, it's looking like, oh, a studio might say, 
hey, we're going to have an AI generate some scripts and then we're going to hire somebody on a contract basis to come in and polish them up or something. Or as the lead negotiator for SAG said last week during the announcement of the strike, he was saying that the the studio AI proposal was that for background extras, for background actors, that they might be scanned and paid a day rate and then their likeness is essentially held by the studio to use in perpetuity with no need for clearance. It's just interesting to me that once we get to this Terminator 2 Judgment Day future, the question we all ask is, can Skynet act? Can Skynet, <laughs> can Skynet write a romantic comedy? That's what we're really leading with in this industry. We're about to find out. Now, in the background of all these conversations for both WGA and SAG-AFTRA, it's a question that everyone on the theatrical side of the business has been asking themselves for decades now, it seems like. Is anybody watching any of the streaming content? Is there any way that we could get any sort of transparency on what these numbers are? Because that's really at the core of being able to redefine what residuals look like, both for writers and for actors. There has to be a reason on why the best guarded secret in Hollywood, a town that has no secrets at all, is just how many people are watching these shows, watching these things on streaming. I don't know, guys. I, the only reason I can come up with is nobody's actually tuning in to watch any of these things. That's the concern there. I mean, you want these writers and actors and want them to be able to negotiate better terms for themselves based on the performance of their earlier projects. And when it comes to streaming, the answer to how well did property XYZ actually do uh, is just a shrug from everyone, or maybe a press release if, uh, if something got seen by a lot of people, but even then you don't know if they're telling the truth. You know, if this is the thing that finally kind of breaks the dam and, and makes streaming numbers accessible in some way, which I think is, is necessary for the continued health of the entire film ecosystem, including cinemas. That's for me, and, and as well as, you know, these writers and actors uh, getting better terms and getting to keep health insurance and, and, and all that, 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 that would be the best possible outcome in my view. Show us the numbers. Well, I mean, you know, Hollywood studios are famous for extraordinarily dodgy accounting practices, yeah. right? I mean, that's that's been a tenant of the business for 100 years. Over the last couple of months as the WGA strike has been ongoing, you've seen writers on big movies, you know, like Ed Solomon, who wrote Men in Black, or, you know, other people saying like, the studios basically will send me a balance sheet saying that the movie is still losing money. It's never made money. It's like it's lost $40 million. And that's the studio excuse for not paying, you know, the percentage points that somebody had. Uh, you know, it's like, oh, I got I got one net profit point, but it'll never be paid because the studios are always going to say the movies are losing money. But I mean, I want to boil it down, though, very specifically, because I think the most important thing really is that if you're working in this industry, the expectation is that you live in LA or maybe in New York. You know, if you're a writer or an actor, you have to be where the action is. And that's in one of those two cities. Those two cities are extraordinarily expensive. At this point, if you are going to live in Los Angeles, the assumption is that you need to be making $70,000 a year or more to just have like a normal existence, not to be well off, but just to get along. And that is a, that's as a single person with no kids, you factor in, you know, all, any of those, you factor in like childcare. And I can tell you personally, those expenses go through the roof. The whole problem that's going on here is that people 
can't make a living. Writers and actors are finding themselves unable to make a living. They're, you know, these are people who are trying to create entertainment, which makes money for other people. But in the meantime, they're working three jobs to try to do this. They don't have health insurance. There's no prospect of being able to retire. There's the people who are, you know, like I mentioned, the guy who wrote Men in Black, it's like, okay, he's probably doing okay. But most people are not. And it's very easy to overlook the idea. It's like there are some very visible people who make a lot of money in this industry, but then below them are tens of thousands of people who do not. And of course, as Rebecca said earlier uh, in this episode, when the writer strike first started to take place here earlier this year, we didn't expect this to have an overwhelming impact on the box office domestically or worldwide, right? Where there's a longer production time. We have the recent experience of uh, the 2008 writer strike that we didn't really see a huge hit in the box office immediately. But this actor strike completely changes that scenario. Now that actors won't be able to promote films and do other tasks, we are seeing probably more of a challenge to make films more visible for moviegoers that may not know they're coming out. Chad, what exactly are actors not permitted to do during this writer's strike? Yeah, there's an, an entire list, um, which SAG After has put out. Any principal on-camera work, acting, obviously, any principal off-camera work, so ADR or doing a trailer, voice acting, anything like that, narration, also background work, stand-in work, photo or body doubles, any fittings, wardrobe tests, rehearsals, camera tests, interviews, auditions, any kind of pretty much anything on the publicity side of things. And that publicity side of things is really what is going to be a headache, I think, in terms of the box office, in terms of if it's not a major IP, oof, let's see how this is able to break through the noise. But as we're going to go into in a little bit, even having a major IP or having a major movie star doing a lot of publicity in this box office maybe doesn't hold the same weight that it used to five years ago. And we should note there are some exceptions. SAG is starting to do some waivers for independent film. But yeah, pretty much everything on the publicity side from award shows, premieres, screenings, junkets, all of it. Which is why we saw you know Disney characters walking the Haunted Mansion carpet this past weekend. Yeah, I think it's going to cause a lot of instability, I think, in the immediate side. Russ, you've covered the festival scene a lot here uh, for publications. You know how integral these personal appearances are in, in order to get some of these independent movies out there. How worried should the major film festivals coming up in September be? Because Toronto's around the corner, Telluride's around the corner, you know, Venice is there. Whatever Hollywood talent wasn't going to go to Venice might skip it this year. Hey, look, I think the problem is less is going to be less about uh, the impact on the festivals this year and more about the impact on the festivals next year when the movies that would be in production now are not available because they weren't shot. Will it be difficult for festivals? Absolutely. But I do want to kind of clarify one thing that you that you just said where you're saying that this strike is going to be creating a lot of instability. And it's like, hey, look, the business practices that have been going on for years have created a lot of instability for everybody. <laughs> and it's like, I think it's very important to keep that in context. You know, it's, there's a lot of reporting that's saying like, hey, this is going to be the financial cost of these strikes. And it's like, you know what, 
It could have been avoided. WGA could have, they could have done a deal. The producers union, the AMPTP has not sat down with the WGA since strike began. They have not been negotiating. So it's just like, there's a point at which, you know, there were quotes that came out last week that immediately gained rabid notoriety for saying like that the producer's approach was basically to starve out the strike, to wait until people just couldn't afford not to go back to work. And and that is such a bloodthirsty approach. And now those were unaccredited quotes. We don't know who said those things. It could have been literally anybody. So they have to be taken with a grain of salt. But what we do see is the simple fact that the producers haven't been negotiating. So if you want to end the strike, if you want to get back to work, you have to be ready to meet writers and actors, you know, where they are at the table. And that hasn't been happening. So everything seems to point that this is going to be a long strike, that there is going to be an immediate impact on the market, but also a medium and long-term impact potentially because, as Ross is saying, there doesn't seem to be any indication that negotiations have even gone underway, that they've even gotten started. Uh, We are looking at a protracted strike, and of course, it's coming at a terrible time for theatrical exhibition, which is still recovering from the pandemic. We had a great first half of the year. We're looking forward to a strong second half of the year. And now the second half of the year, there's a big asterisk in front of it because of this strike, because of these labor tensions. We do have at least one bright spot to look forward to this weekend with the opening of both Barbie and Oppenheimer. Let's go into those opening weekend ranges, guys, because uh, there's a lot of potential here at the box office. We might not be saying that for a while after this weekend, so we have to take the wins for a week and get them. Rebecca, it looks like Barbie might be a lock for a $100 million plus opening weekend weekend domestically. It's been a while since we've been able to say that. Absolutely. I mean, ever since CinemaCon and and just going towards, you know, the last few days speaking to exhibitors, uh, the overwhelming sentiment has been Barbie is going to kill it. It looks like at various uh, various cinemas, the marketing efforts for Barbie, you've seen some really creative, creative initiatives going on. And on our side, our predictions have over the last few months just kept going up and up and up uh, for how much this film is expected to make on opening weekend. Right now, we are looking at uh, 115 and 155 million, kind of being the span uh, for that opening weekend, up 32% from what we predicted uh, last week based on buzz, based on pre-sales, looking at a total range of around 300 million at the lower end. So uh, yeah, definitely this is, uh, this is one that I, I think ever since seeing that, that first kind of footage, uh, ever since seeing the promotion of the film at CinemaCon, I think the industry has been, been very uh, excited for this one and continues to be. Same thing applies to Oppenheimer, a very different movie, Christopher Nolan's latest. Uh, we have an opening range of that between 48 and $57 million domestically. Topping out at a ceiling for around $200 million, but don't be surprised if this comes in around the 160s. Of course, there's a very big difference between something called Barbie and a three-hour-long movie about men speaking in rooms. And we have to look at these movies accordingly in terms of those financial expectations. But we do expect those titles to perform you know, decently well for what we've had so far this year. And we say that because we had... I don't want to say it was a good one. I don't want to say it was a bad one. Opening weekend for Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1. Let's call it what it is. It was along the lines of how Mission Impossible movies have performed before the pandemic. 
if you were following social media, uh, you might think that Dead Reckoning was just like a complete flop and everything was, oh, it was such a disappointment. Uh, I don't really know where that narrative came from because it, it wasn't the case. It, it wasn't a spectacular, you know, Top Gun Maverick, everybody and their mother going to see this movie sort of situation. But it's in line with, you know, it's the seventh film in the Mission Impossible franchise. The opening weekend, that Friday to Sunday quarter, uh, it earned $56.2 million. It actually came out the previous Wednesday. So you take the whole five-day span. Uh, it's $80 million estimated. That five-day total is like just around uh, what the sixth film in the franchise, uh, Fallout, did in 2018, uh, just about 3% ahead of it, in fact. And uh, yeah, you know, we saw uh, in terms of the audience demographics, 60% male, 55% uh, ages 35 and up, 51% white, and 37% of the domestic audience uh, saw the film in some sort of premium format, including a 13% from IMAX domestically. Yeah, I think it was, again, not great, not terrible along the lines of where these movies perform. It's it's crazy that we when we get a pre-COVID performance at the box office and it doesn't match, let's say, optimistic expectations, we automatically qualify it as a disappointment. So do we want to compare ourselves to 2019 or not? Because if we're, if we're going back and matching on a like-for-like -like basis, I think that's fine. Uh, of course, there was a potential for this movie to open ahead of the prior installments. There was a lot of anticipation riding on it. Paramount with some interesting statistics here, uh, saying that the film over-indexed in the West and Northeast regions of the United States, while under-indexing in the Midwest South Central and Southeast regions. Meanwhile, there's another title currently playing in cinemas that is over-indexing in the places that Mission Impossible failed to connect with moviegoers. And that is Angel Studios' Sound of Freedom, which at this point is going to be the surprise hit of 2023, a movie with a grassroots marketing campaign that was able to tap into a segment of the audience that uh, I don't think anyone expected to be this large. Chad, what are the numbers for Sound of Freedom now in its second weekend in the market? Yeah, so in its second weekend, it brought in 27 million, which is just a 37% drop, and it's up to 84.5 for the domestic total. This whole pay it forward thing, how is that actually working and what is that all about? So we have to we have to explain this. Do you, do you guys know about this pay it forward thing? Rebecca Russ, or how familiar are you with this scheme? Because it kind of seems like a scheme. Yeah, I'm surprised no one thought up of this before. We may know how many tickets are being sold, but we have no idea how many people have actually seen how, this yeah. movie in theaters. Uh, for this one, yeah, you can kind of buy a ticket for someone else, that money, I guess, kind of gets put into a pot. And then if someone else wants to see it for free, they can. I mean, I've been seeing images of theaters that are, quote unquote, sold out for this film that have nobody in them. Yeah, but we can, you know, to verify those, I mean, there's a lot of interest here on what's being said on social media, you know, whether negative or positive, there are political, social, culture war interests at hand in how this is being covered on social. So we're being very careful to verify any information. What we can say is that this movie had sold at this point, $84.5 million worth of tickets. Now, that's a lot of tickets. Now, we can say how many people are actually seeing the movie, how much does that equate in terms of average ticket price. We don't ask that question of Hollywood releases on PLF, 
that are charging $35 plus, right? So why would we ask that question here? It, the money's still the money, whether, whether that is equaling admissions or not, that's not a metric that this industry has ever been particularly tough on anyone to, to sort of gauge. I would agree. I mean, not not officially. I think it's interesting. I mean, because we we do ask about those things in the context of pricing discussions, which is something that has been more of a, a, a concern, more of a topic in this industry over the last few years. I mean, this is definitely, I think, from that perspective, an interesting strategy, an interesting marketing technique, an interesting way of pricing, even though the ticket prices are the same. You know, it still is involved with pricing since you pay for someone else to go see things like that, things like maybe I think it's uh, it's interesting seeing how some of these studios are coming up with innovative ways to kind of get around people maybe not wanting to pay at the price of a full movie ticket. Yeah, I don't know how you claim one of those tickets that has been paid for by someone else. I've not seen any discussion of how that works. I do think the question of whether or not there are actually butts in those seats is valid because this is being presented as like, as you mentioned, Daniel, as kind of an an quote unquote, important battle in the culture war, as it were. And so the question of whether or not people are actually seeing the film is, I think, important, but maybe not important to this immediate conversation where we're talking about what the movie makes. What I will say is important is that this is a topic we've come back to on the podcast over and over, which is this over-indexing potential with faith-based films or films that intersect a faith-based audience. I haven't seen this movie. My sense of it is is that the idea that it's faith-based is maybe tangential, but and I have no opinion on the quality of the movie one way or the other or its validity. I haven't seen it. I don't know. But what we have seen is that there's a way to sell this movie to an audience. And every couple of years, somebody really cracks that code or cracks a different version of that code. And that's what we're seeing happening here. And it's, if anything, it's kind of remarkable that people don't manage to do this more consistently because there's clearly an audience that really, really wants to believe they are doing something good by seeing a movie like this. And this is coming from a studio that isn't coming out of nowhere. Angel Studios has a background in launching faith-based titles and communicating at a grassroots level with its core audience and maximizing that potential of a core audience. Let's face it, a title like Sound of Freedom isn't going to get a crossover box office appeal. But the fact that it's gotten 100 million means that it's maximized whatever core there was to that audience. If Ezra Miller is a headache in promoting your title for The Flash, Wait till you get a load of Jim Caviezel doing press <laughs> interviews, right? Yeah, like, yeah the guy, the guy is... Uh, one. Yeah. Jim Caviezel's press tour isn't going to get you the crossover audience that your movie might have gotten. So this movie, knowing that it has a relative handicap that maybe other faith-based titles wouldn't have, has still been able to perform beyond anyone's expectations. I'm not sure how much it's going to slow down, guys. This is the the odd title that doesn't need premium format screens, especially at a time in the market when Barbie's fighting for premium format screens, Mission Impossible's fighting for them, and then you've got Oppenheimer. There's so much traffic for that expensive movie ticket. Meanwhile, you have this pay-it-forward scheme with people willingly buying tickets that may or might not be used in standard auditoriums. Angel Studios got this one right. I just am not sure if this concept can be replicated with any other type of movie. I don't see A24 or Focus Features or Searchlight being able to use this idea for independent films. 
And talking about independent movies and studios like Searchlight, we did have a very positive opening weekend here, not at the super million of dollars level that Paramount's Mission Impossible did, but you do have Theater Camp, the comedy from Searchlight, opening to a per screen average of $45,000 out of uh, six screens in a three-day period. Chad, what were the numbers behind this specialty hit? Yeah, um, it grossed 270K for its opening three-day weekend. Obviously, some of those bigger cities doing well at those locations in, in Brooklyn and Century City. All six of the opening weekend theaters performed well. AMC, Lincoln Square, and Alamo Brooklyn leading the way. And in, in each case, with the second highest grossing film uh, behind Mission Impossible. Uh, so the film landed at also landed at number one at the Angelica and is expanding to more cities next week. And it will be in six to 800 locations by August. Not bad. So a nice uh, relative expansion for this title from Searchlight. You can read Rebecca Pauly's interview with the filmmakers behind Theater Camp on our website, boxofficepro.com. Thank you so much for joining us. And now to our feature segment with the NAC and Malco Theater's Larry Etter coming up after the break. are back here on the Box Office Podcast with one of my favorite people in the industry, Larry Etter from Alco Theaters. Uh, Larry has been my food and beverage guru in this industry since I started working here uh, over 10 years ago. Every question I have on the food and beverage side, he's been kind enough to answer, and that's why we love to bring him on the podcast to answer more questions and all of the updates happening in the worlds of concessions and food and beverage. But let's talk about the big picture here because a convention that we all know and love here in the industry, the National Association of Concessionaires, is just wrapping up its latest edition, actually in your hometown, Memphis, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, right? we're actually um, at the Peabody Hotel in Memphis. So we have the five-star hotel and What's nice about the convention this year is that we like to visit the various venues, arenas, and facilities that, you know, NAC represents. And so the Cardinals AAA team, uh, the Redbirds, have their stadium right across the street from the Peabody. The Memphis Grizzlies, the FedEx Forum, is one block away. Uh, we've got the Powerhouse downtown. We've got the Cook Conventions, excuse me, the Renaissance Convention Center, which is in you know, within a few blocks. So everything is is basically planted together, and it's going to make it very convenient for you know all the attendees to to enjoy those facilities. Now, talking about the NAC, there's a big rebrand coming here because the world of concessions isn't like it was even 10 years ago. Major, major changes coming along the way. And we'll be talking about some of those evolutions shortly with you, Larry. But the association itself is going through a rebrand. You can find the story on boxofficepro.com. It's not the NAC anymore. What's the new name of the association? The association has rebranded itself to be called the International Entertainment Food and Beverage Alliance. And I think the theme here is that the world of entertainment and the food and beverage offerings have become much more diverse. Uh, it's no longer just about snacks, popcorn, sodas. It's now more about, you know, we've, we're integrating alcohol, we're integrating wines, we're in integrating uh, bigger menus. Uh, one of the trends that everybody's focused on right now is dine-in cinemas. And so that lends itself to it. And uh, the National Association 
concessionaires for years uh, has been diversified. And while a large majority of its membership comes from the cinema and exhibition side, there are stadiums and arenas, zoos, convention centers, airports, all members of NAC. And, you know, as I kind of talk to my colleagues and the next generation of managers, I tell them that what we're doing in stadiums, arenas, and cinemas, it's much more complex than than most restaurants now, because most restaurants focus on one thing. But if you're in a stadium, you've got skyboxes, you've got catering, you've got special events, you have snacks, you have QSR restaurants, you have the whole gamut of what food and beverage looks like. And so the people that are in this industry now are much, much more talented, much more skilled than, you know, ever before. And and I think that's kind of exciting for us. Something that the consumers have also been noticing, you go to the movies and you're already interacting in a way that you would at a restaurant, not even at a fast food restaurant, like a fast casual restaurant. You're interacting with a waiter, you're looking at a wine list. A lot of the food is fresh to make. Of course, you've got easier things like chicken fingers that you can make you know, on the spot. But the evolution that you've been mentioning, Larry, has been incredible here when we look at movie theaters in the United States and Canada. Let's start with the alcohol side of the conversation, because this is something that just continues to surprise me, just that footprint, how it expands, how much audiences have embraced alcohol and special drinks, custom cocktails at theaters. What's been uh, your biggest takeaway from that expansion so far this year? Well, Daniel, I'll tell you, you, you brought up a good word and, and it's evolution. And I remember back in the 80s, we started putting in arcades because we found another revenue stream. And so between 80, 90s uh, and early 2000s, that was a great concept. But as that generation of moviegoers has aged, they've gotten out of the arcade mode and they've gotten into the adult beverage mode. And what we have found on the operation side is that while arcades were very profitable, the bar business is about four times as profitable. And, you know, the cost of doing business is, is really good because, you know, our cost of goods on the alcohol side is probably less than 20%. So you have 80% gross margin and that lends itself, you know, concessions were for, for, for so long. So we're able to increase you know, the, the per spend per guest. And so I think that's the, you know, the trend, the movement. Uh, and, you know, to your, again, to your point, the, the evolution is that as moviegoers age, their wishes, um, their desires uh, start to change. And we have to adapt to that. You know, at NAC, during the convention, uh, the leadoff speaker was Kurt Moody with Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry is a is an organization that works with all kinds of entities, mostly hotels and restaurants, but they're finding a niche with groups like, for example, Marcus Theaters uses them to explore, expand, and market adult beverages, you know, custom cocktails. And they also bring alliances in with the different distilleries or wineries. And that also helps with sponsorships and Again, a little more revenue to help offset, you know, some of the costs that we've experienced over the past three years. So that's one of the more interesting things that I find that, again, you know, theaters are are not standing still. They're moving forward and expanding what their offerings can be and learning to compete, literally learning to compete with other bars in, in the neighborhood. And so that's the exciting part, I think, about 
the theme. <laughs> well, you look at you look at some of these evolutions, and I, I look at what AMC Theaters has been doing in this initiative with the rapper Cardi B bringing in these whip shots, which is this like vodka infused whipped cream in shots and some of its alcoholic beverages. You now have these brand associations, these brand partnerships with uh, with other celebrity brands not bringing you to the movies bringing you to the concession stand bringing you to the bar i think it's a great tool for uh for exhibitors to really look at how they can bring in a little bit more revenue from their fnb especially over the summer when you never know which movie is going to hit which one isn't sometimes you need the bar to overperform on some of those uh, slow weekends talking about alcohol it's not just having there it's not just having it there, it's also marketing it. And I think that also applies to having expanded menus. You don't really have to market popcorn at the movies. That's who we come in with that advantage, right? People know the popcorn, the candy, those are staples. Those are going to be there. But if you put in a big investment in bringing in a kitchen or bringing in a fryer to your cinema, you're probably going to have to work a little bit harder to market some of those menu items. How is the uh, association looking at those challenges that exhibitors are facing today? Well, at the convention itself, we brought in the University of Memphis, Kimmins Wilson's Culinary School, and the three chefs talked in terms of the new labor market and the demand for skilled labor in kitchens, as well as value propositions and how to improve the presentations of what food we have. And so I, I thought, you know, that's an exciting a picture for us to see. You know, it's we, we have to get past just hiring 16 to 17 year olds to work and sell sodas and, and, and present popcorn. That's gotten much more complicated. And as I've told all of my peers and, you know, even my own ownership group, if movie theater owners and exhibitors decide they want to get into uh, full service food and beverage, they better be willing to compete with every restaurant in the neighborhood because if you're not as good or better than they are, once they they experience something that's less than that, that will stick. And so therefore they'll continue to use the restaurants outside the cinema. Okay. And then you have that investment and you don't have uh, the revenue to support the investment that you made. So it's extremely important for us in the exhibition industry to understand what, you know, the quality parameters are and you can't sell yourself short. So I think it's great that, you know, the convention itself brought in some experts just to talk about, you know, those kinds of aspects. I can tell you as a consumer myself, it, it makes perfect sense. If I go to the movies, I want maybe an expanded menu item that's simple to make, like let's say French fries or, or mentioned chicken fingers. That's easy to make. That's not a massive investment, right? But if I go to a dine-in cinema, I have that expectation that my meal, if I'm paying the same as I would at a restaurant, it better be just as good, if not better. Otherwise, I'm catching the movie and guess where I'm going after the movie? I'm going to the restaurant, right? Uh, it's not something you have to deal with when it comes to alcohol service, as you mentioned. It's something that you can deliver rather easily. But when it comes to food, that investment isn't just in the architecture, isn't just in the ingredients. It's also in your staff, having knowledgeable staff to come in and really deliver this experience. Yeah, I would agree. And it's about the service. How do we deliver that service that equals what a restaurant would be? I will tell you that uh, my recent research shows that as we progress, the buying habits of the consumer now are that they understand the cost 
they're willing to pay the cost. They're not going to complain anymore about movies, movie theaters, and the expense it is for food and beverage, as long as it's good. What they will do is they'll roll back. So they're willing to pay the higher prices, whether it be for, you know, pizzas or uh, chicken tenders or whatever, popcorn, whatever we charge, candy, as long as it's it meets their quality standards. And so I think that's kind of ex- exciting from the standpoint that the consumer now has basically thrown up the white flag and said, OK, we'll pay the price. Uh, we're not going to complain anymore about that. And the law of price elasticity is, is kind of going out the window. The other issue is that while they're doing that, they basically have said we're not going to do it as often. And I think that's going to be a problem for us going forward. So hopefully the films and the product that's being released continues to be at a very high level and we keep attracting people, get them back into the cinemas. But we need to be careful because the, you know, the consumer now is basically saying, I'll spend the money, but I'm just not going to spend it as often. That's a very good way of putting it. And that is a concern. Uh, you know, we look at the evolution of this industry as a whole. And one of the reasons why I love your convention is that you're able to look outside of just the cinema space and look at how consumer habits are evolving in other entertainment and leisure industries. You've seen it every, basically you've seen it in the sporting arenas, right? You mentioned that how you're touring sporting arenas. Anytime you have this convention, you go to the local uh, you know, stadiums and arenas to look at what they're doing. 20, 30 years ago, it was very simple concessions, very simple prices, soda, maybe a beer. Now it's a completely different game out there. And you've seen consumers adapt to that reality. Do you believe the same is going to be happening with movie theaters? Now that you have your equivalent to the skybox with uh, premium auditoriums at your local movie theater, is it going to be like it is at Yankee Stadium now where I can go get a steak dinner or fresh sushi whenever I go to a theater? I don't think so. I think, you know, my colleagues and peers that I talked to, we found that most likely, now I'm not going to talk in terms of dine-in cinemas because that's a, I think that's a different culture of exhibition. But what we find is that most people want hand-to-mouth kind of foods. So that's why pizzas and chicken tenders and hamburgers are working because they don't need utensils. It's not complicated. The creative part comes in, how do you make a hamburger exciting? You know, that's the question. How do you make chicken tenders look like something they've never seen before? That's going to be the process that we move to. I think when you sit at a movie for two and a half hours or two hours, you have that tendency to snack. And we're the one industry where sharing is acceptable. So, you know, you get the large bag of M&Ms and you share it, or you get the large tub of popcorn and you share it. Looking at all these evolutions, looking at things that are changing, things that aren't, you mentioned how hand-to-mouth foods will continue being the performers in theaters just by the nature of what going to a movie means. What are the biggest changes on consumer behavior that you've seen so far? And I know it's going to be alcohol, so let's go beyond alcohol because that's obviously by far the runaway number one. Right. You know, I think the studies show now that female demographics are the ones who are driving the business. And the research that I did last year for my uh, thesis paper showed that some over 57 percent, almost almost 60 percent of the people buying tickets right now are females. And I think we have to address what the female demographic looks like and what they want. What they want are choices. They want value. It's funny. They want choices and they want, you know, to look at the menu boards or, or the offerings, but they still go back to the, you know, the core items. Uh, men, on the other hand, 
typically will just go in and get exactly what they want. They really don't care. They know they want a, a soda, they want a popcorn, and they want a candy or they want a hot dog. That's it. But I do think that we need to pay more attention to female demographics because they're going to be the drivers and the decision makers for what what happens. And so, and that you know can play along with these custom cocktails that we're talking about. I think you know generally speaking, men want a beer or they want a vodka tonic. You know, they're not real specific about the fufu kind of glamour. But I do think you know with a movie like Barbie coming out, you know, we need to focus on you know what the pink cocktail looks like, you know, you know what? That'll carry over to me. I don't care. I'll get the foo foo glamour cocktails. Give me a pink foo foo glamour cocktail. <laughs> Name it that I'll go to Malco theaters, have the Daniel Luria foo foo glamour cocktail for Barbie special. <laughs> I'll put a lot of vodka in it and we're good. Larry, looking at other big changes here in the industry, Larry, we've seen anyone that's been to a new movie theater has seen that concession stand space change physically. It's not how it was before that you have that big, glass case at the front and you have the candy in the glass case and you have maybe the popcorn back there and you have to ask you have to you know look look over the shoulder of the person serving you to look at the popcorn in the background getting popped it's very different now how has the architecture of the concession stand influenced some of these consumer behaviors there's some investigation going on right now looking at grab and go or almost marketplace type of food and beverage offerings. I know that Landmark Cinemas in Western Canada has uh, built a few of these and they were ready to move forward just before 2020. And that slowed everything down, of course, the pandemic and everything that occurred there. But, you know, at, at the NAC convention, Adam Dumay, excuse me, I would just walk out is making a presentation and, you know, talking about the advantages because what happens when you have a marketplace or for lack of better terms, a convenience store, people are buying things spontaneously. And so, you know, you have, if it's right there in front of you, I say, oh yeah, I'd like some, I'd like some M&Ms. Yeah, let's take those. And then you see a, a, an ice cream freezer. Oh yeah, let's get an ice cream bar. And then you see something else and you buy that. And then of course you have to get your soda and your popcorn. And the next thing you know, your per caps are going up because people, you know, they're buying with their eyes, okay, as opposed to with their wallet. Well, yeah, for an indulgence, you mentioned ice cream specifically. If I have to ask to get an ice cream, I have to admit that I want the ice cream. I have to ask someone. I think of like asking my mom, can I get that ice cream? If I can just grab it and pay for it, no questions asked, just give me the ice cream. I already got it. I don't need to ask your permission. You don't need to validate it for me. Right. I think that's going to be something that's explored here in the very near future going forward. I think once everyone, all the exhibitors get recapitalized, uh, once we make a, a little bit of money and we pay off some of our bills and we can start to renovate and offer, you know, capital improvements, I think you're going to see people test that market for sure. Yeah, I think it's one of the changes on the horizon that I think we're all excited to see how it evolves the big picture of how cinemas are built, are experienced and how they will continue to thrive in the coming years. Larry Adder, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Daniel. It's always a pleasure. And that was Larry Etter from Malco Theatres and the National Association of Concessionaires speaking about this week's NAC Expo in Memphis. Earlier in the episode, we had Chad Kenner, Russ Fisher, and Rebecca Pauly joining us to talk about the strike from the writers and actors unions and going over the latest box office and industry news here in the world of theatrical exhibition. Thank you again for joining us. And we'll be back again next week with more from the world of movie going. 
This is Daniel Luria thanking you once again for tuning in to the Box Office Podcast. We'll talk to you again next week.